everybody, and welcome to salutations and other implications of problematic regimes. Buenvenue. Bienvenue. What did you say? Buenvenue. It's the 67th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games, card games, entertaining yourself, improving your social esteem because you're sitting down with buddies and they're following your rules. That's right, mum. <laughs> We're following my rules this time. Uh, my name is Quentin Smith, and I am joined by my two esteemed colleagues of the Shut Up and Sit Down website. Webisodes come out of them all the time. Are too many. Wow. It's Matt Lees. Hello. And Paul Dean. Hi, how are you doing? That initial before it really spelled off was a was a snapshot through the window. Not that I'm taking photographs through your window of of a Quentin Smith family Christmas. It's yeah. <laughs> my rules now. We're playing games. My Christmas is a parody of English Christmases. I don't even go to them uh, anymore, tragically. Uh, I am somewhat estranged from my family. Uh, that's not a joke. That's just reality. But oh, when wow. I used to go to Christmases, uh, they were they were a lot of rules. Well, in really? reality, family is wherever the Christmas is. Yeah, literally, like the kind of um, you know, all the Christmas dinner is cold by the time you have sat down and finished all the sort of um ceremony around it. So wow, it's no, it's not even not even necessarily hot anymore. That's not what it's about. No, no it's about hugs. Uh, so, I thought we would do this podcast slightly backwards, you guys. I don't know if you're ready for a wild experiment, but I, I feel like I can always rely on you two to be a bit, to be a bit out there. A bit wild and experimental? <laughs> yeah, you, that's, why I, that's why I hired you both. Remember, Paul, back in the, when I founded Shut Up and Sit Down alone, and without you, I was like, Paul, you should come and work for me. <laughs> Paul, um, you're wild. I think Paul is more wild and experimental than I am. Some of the footage that's come out of Paul's mind, I would just never do. That's true. So here's what we're going to do. Rather than talking about some of the board games we've played for the last uh, couple of weeks, why don't we talk about what we're working on? Ooh. A vision into the future. Like Doctor Who. Yes. Um, Except yeah. hopefully less convoluted and confusing. It's funny you say that, Paul, because Matt and I were talking just today about how uh, Matt Smith... Bit Matthew Lee's style. Yeah, I'm still annoyed by that, by the fact that Matt is Smith that turned up. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, obviously, he didn't mean to do it, and it's a complete coincidence. But yeah, he meant he did it. Yeah, I mean, it suddenly it turned out, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, your loads like Doctor Who." If Matt cannot wear a bow tie without looking like he's cosplaying, no, I can't because it's like he just basically acted my mannerisms. It's like everyone's like, "Oh, it's like no, he, he could have just hired me and saved a fortune." Yeah. So, Paul, what are you working on right now? I am working on my Doctor Who audition. Before that, uh, I'm looking at Azul in the future. I'm looking at Spirit island as well um and i'm working myself up on this podcast to talk a bit about the enormous game that is lisboa oh yes because mm. lisboa um uh, a vital lacerda game if people aren't aware a uh, portuguese designer who makes um tremendously complicated games that get us excited and we've noticed that uh, whenever we actually talk about them on our actual site doesn't get much traffic. It's just the really vocal, noisy elements of the board game community who love board games so much. Yeah, they're, they're an acquired taste, aren't they? That's it. That's what's happening with them. Is they're they're good at what they are, but they're not maybe for everybody. Yeah, and I think it was easier back before um, Lacerda started working with Ian O'Toole and um, some other really great artists, yeah. um, which took these like previously really complicated, mad-looking games, which mm. looked complicated and mad and German and all this stuff, um, and now they're gorgeous. So now it's like it's like a honey trap where Team Shut Up and Sit Down goes, well, we have to cover these beautiful, complicated games. But still our audience is like, oh, no, they're still mad and complicated. It's just that lick of paint ain't fooling me. No, no. Lick of paint ain't for fooling. 
Uh, and Spirit Island, which looks very complicated, and you've just opened the box and are about to sit down and play it. This is behind the curtain. You were talking to us just before it, the podcast. It is. Like- uh, it's about three feet away from me right now, and it has this really glossy, really nice manual, which um, it, it looks almost cartoonish and very cute, but it's hiding a decent amount of complexity. It's this co-op mm. game about um, folks turning up to colonize your island and you trying to, as much as you can, slow them down and push them away. Um, so thematically, it's you know fairly serious, but also rules-wise, it's deeper than I first thought. It was described, I think, by no pun included, as a like a wonderful idea in a box, ah. and and that was the point where I thought, ah, this is something that maybe I don't want. And having watched the review, I think personally, I won't say any more than that, but I'll be interested to see what you think of it, Paul. Me too. Yeah, me too. I think it's greater than games. Is that right, Paul? Yes. Yeah, so they also put out uh, Laser Riders. Laser Riders. Which makes myself fine. Wait, what is this? I don't know this. Oh, I don't... You might have missed the uh, podcast, Matt and I... Was that the podcast that I recorded very badly? Uh, I From the UK Games Expo, yeah. Laser yeah, there was one riders. that was fine and one that wasn't. Um, it was kind of uh, using the placement... Um, you know when you play X-Wing and you put down the cardboard things? Oh, to, you're talking about the yeah. X-Wing miniatures game. Yeah, the X-Wing miniatures game where you have the cardboard things that show where your ship is going to end up at the end of the movement. Yes. Um, it's kind of that, but rather than taking them away, you just join them together to create these long lines. Like Tron light bikes. Like Tron light bikes. And very much like Tron light bikes, you have to break the other lines. Is that how it works? No, you have to not, no, not run into... Just like Tron light bikes. I've seen the film Tron, but I was like, six, come mm. on. Um, you have to not ram into other people's light beams and you play it on a table and we played it and it was kind of fun but uh, the presentation of the game the box it comes out in is amazing yes, oh was this the, the 80s style one they kickstarted yeah. yeah the one that looks like it, it oh I don't know if it's the one you're thinking of Paul but the presentation of Laser Riders is it looks like um, a box that contains four VHS tapes. Yeah, um, yeah, they kickstarted it, I think. Uh, it's okay. a proper Saturday morning TV thing. It's a beautiful object, and it is just a, a lovely coffee table thing to have if you're that sort of person. But we found the game just not quite... It wasn't It wasn't enough. For, yeah, yeah, so it seems like Greater Than Games are... Because uh, I think Viva Java is them as well, a sort of game about um, selling coffee. And uh, so they seem to be... Uh, acquiring and presenting these these games which are really out there wonderful ideas for games it just seems like the design of them isn't doing anything but that's the way to do it i mean you know when ideas hit and ideas are matched with good design those things are just my favorites so you know completely yeah fair enough but yeah we'll be uh curious to to hear what you have to say about spirit island paul Uh, i'm looking forward to it uh what are you working on mr lees well i am working very slowly on uh because my gosh that game is like is like swimming in glue uh, through Gloomhaven. Mm. Uh, Gloomhaven, a good time. Gloomhaven. <laughs> that I mean, that joke's probably going to be in the, the review in some terrible format. I apologise in advance. Um, it's you know, it's incredibly slow. Uh, so, do you want to give people some background on uh, Gloomhaven? Right. Gosh. Okay. Gloomhaven is a gigantic box of things, and basically, it's a miniature-based combat um, game, and it's got grids it's basically like <laughs> oh god this is terrible i've just my brain's just collapsed um it's a bit like descent or imperial uh, assault um in terms of it being like kind of like grid-based maps combat team-based combat except there isn't an overlord there isn't like kind of a gm character to stop you and be the bad guy you're just playing against 
um, campaigns. So actually, in a weird way, it's a lot like something like Hero Quest, and actually, it reminds me a lot of Hero the Quest. The old 1980s game. Yeah, yeah of being yeah. like, you walk into this room, there's stuff in this room, put the miniatures down, put the baddies in the room, there's treasure, what's the treasure going to be? I don't know. Um, None of which explains why, two things, uh, why does Gloomhaven come in a box the size of like a, a car, some mm-hmm. certain car engines are, are smaller yeah. than Gloomhaven box. And also, um, why is it, uh, as we have seen recently, Gloomhaven has received such unbelievable critical reception, I think it's now the fourth best game ever on yeah. Game Geek. yeah. And, you know, the thing is, I was not expecting great things. Um, having seen uh, a lot of the fervor that can come around these big box, these luxury experiences. But the interesting thing about Gloomhaven is it isn't a luxury experience. It's a big experience mm. and it's a big box. But actually, like, the feel of the components and the feel of the box and the feel of a lot of the stuff in it is quite cheap. But it's not a cheap game. Mm. But it is a cheap game. It's the, weird thing, <laughs> the weird thing is, you, for what you get, the size of the box, the scale of it, like, I think it's about 80 bucks. It will probably cost me about half of that to just post it to your house. Like it's right. it's an incredibly big, heavy thing. And so I'm actually very forgiving of the fact that actually, in many regards, things, you know, the, the quality of the punch board's a bit cheap. Uh, there's no art on the cards, but there's so many things. And usually this is the point where I just go, well, why do I want many things? Yeah, that's my question. When someone tells me there are, you know, what are there, like 16 heroes in the Gloomhaven box? Probably more than that. And you I- only played you know, two or three. We've only or played four. two so far. And I mean, this is when I say it's glacial and the fact that like we've probably played for about six or seven hours and neither of us have actually even leveled up a character yet. <laughs> oh my God. Like, I'm pretty close to like level two. You know, admittedly, we've been playing at a slow pace and having a nice lazy time with it. But I think the crucial thing is um, in a game with lots of content, because the answer to why there's so much stuff in it is, and this is kind of why I love it, and I think I do love it so far, uh, and it's going to be very difficult to review because I'm probably going to have to jump through the box in a careful way. Um, but it reminds me of that feeling of playing Hero Quest as a kid, except that there's actually, there is more stuff to do. And Hero Quest was always an idea that I loved, but actually in reality, you you played all the missions and then you'd done it all. You'd you'd seen all the big, all the plastic figurine monsters. Right. But, Reading Paul's old article on Hero Quest, it felt like the appeal of Hero Quest was, oh my God, this can do anything. When in reality, it it didn't do anything. It did, no. It did some things. Exactly. Mm. And it was the idea of it being this thing that you could keep playing forever, but actually you couldn't. Whereas in Gloomhaven, it does really feel like a game that you can keep playing for a very long time. Or more importantly, perhaps, the way I can see myself playing it, being something that you can get out of the cupboard every now and then and play, um, but have a different experience with every time. Because it has this weird sort of system whereby it's not really a legacy game. And it took me a while to get my head around this because it has like, you can, you know, play different campaigns. You can play different characters. You can, but at the same time, you unlock missions, you complete missions. So the world is persistent, but then you could jump in with another party and play some different characters. Oh, that's interesting. And it means rather than being like, let's get it out again and play a campaign from the start, you might not play it for a while and then a few years get it out and just sort of carry on with the overall campaign have this sort of like very different heroes yeah like the way it works is that it does have the kind of slight legacy thing of at the start of the game you've got like five or six characters unlocked and then you get a randomized mission for that character and then you complete that over the campaign and i'm like a quarter of the way to finishing it when that happens that hero is then retired wait so you're you're not level two but you're still a quarter of the way to being done with your character yeah okay so, but then it means that, and this is why it's quite clever in a way. It takes, it does take a leaf from the video games world and the fact that everything scales, right? Which means that like your, my character is not level two yet, but by the time I unlock a new character and like, you know, by the time it's like 
either I can just change my character because I want to play a different one, or I retire a character because this character's like done their mission. Um, the new character I get might start at level two or uh, level three. Okay. Uh, so it means that when you get it, you open this little box, and this is actually one of the things I love about it. You, you, these boxes with the characters, I don't know what they are. Like, so, so I have. Um, I'm really looking forward to your review, obviously, and and it's really nice for Shut Up and Sit Down to be tackling one of these uh, big Kickstarter games like Scythe. Um, but to have one of our team be like, "No, this is honestly really good." Yeah. Um, which I'm not even sure has happened in the site's history. Um, but here's my question: So, you your current experience of Gloomhaven is that you like it, but it sounds like you've experienced maybe like you know three or four percent exactly of the box. So how much of your enjoyment comes from the sort of like weird dopamine pleasure hormone hit of like knowing this experience your pot of is big? Like if Gloomhaven, if the box was a tenth of the size, yeah. the game experience you'd be having would be identical, but would you be enjoying it as much? You know, that's the thing I've got to got to tackle. And that's the thing which is actually, especially with a game like this, it's a... Uh, it's hard to know exactly how much of it to play, um, both from the perspective of obviously the more I play it, the more I'm going to like it because of, you know, exposure. But also, yeah, like the more you play it, the more you might actually get a sense of, of how much of that is just the the sensation of opening new things. But what I would say so far is, especially having played, um, I think we've done three missions yep. so far um, and unlocked nothing new, but we've had a really good time. Yeah. So mm. I kind of feel like actually for a game... That's what's so weird about it. It is a box with tons of stuff. Yeah. But it and feels so, like what they've done... Sorry, go for it. I, well, I was going to say, do you know what that stuff is? Is it just like more quests? Is it more monsters? Do you... Is, you know, are there huge surprises in there? Because I'm trying to work out what the physical mass of this thing is. Is it all sort of cards and cardboard? Or is it uh, the fact that there's a lot of miniatures and monsters? Like, what actually is all of that stuff? Mostly card and cardboard, which I like. And I think one of the reasons I actually like Gloomhaven is it's economic with with its breadth. Yeah. It, it isn't like, look at all these minis. The only miniatures in the game are the hero characters. Each of the hero characters is in two boxes, a little box which has a miniature which has the hero in it and a little box which has the cards and any other little bits of tracking stuff for that particular class. It means before you even open up a new class, you've no idea what it is. It's just a symbol on a box. You don't know if it's a man or a woman. I opened my first box. I mean, this is... At my first box, it was like a little rat character. I had no idea. It was like, hmm. I'm a little rat. Well, cool. <laughs> and I love that that idea that like you're just going to get a thing and whether or not then the, the the those characters are actually as fun to play as the ones that I've played with so far is a good question. But the nature of the content is actually weirdly like it reminds me of a big RPG like Skyrim or something in a way because you have all of these different cardboard stands which are the different enemy types. And the way each enemy works is you just pop up these little cardboard stands and then you have a very clever little square bit of paper which has like all the different levels of that creature. So it's like, what level are you fighting at? It's level four, which means you turn it to that level, you slide it into a little cardboard sheath, which means you've only got the information for that, for what the stats are at that level. And then you fight it and you track the health. It's all actually quite neat. But what I really love is the fact that a lot of the content is about fighting these different enemies. And the way the enemies work is each enemy has a deck of little mini cards, which is behavior cards. And this reminded me quite a lot of Kingdom Death in a way yeah, of being like, yeah. you're fighting monsters. Oh, right, yes. But unlike Kingdom Death, from what I get kind of gleaned from Paul's review, in this, it isn't just kind of things coming out of nowhere and being like, this is going to happen and this has screwed you. It's all quite gentle and it gives you a sense of 
personality in the monsters and mm. personality in the creatures. And you kind of like a new thing appears and you're like, oh my God, what does this, what does it do? And then you kind of get a sense that it's like, oh, this zombie type thing moves very slowly, hits like a truck, but often when it moves quickly, it actually hurts itself in the process. And this is all done without any flavor text. It is just literally like move plus one, minus one to health. But it really does bring the creatures and the monsters to life because you do very quickly, just from drawing a couple of cards, get a real sense for the character of these things that you're fighting. That's good. And there's tons of monsters. And it's just like, it has a lot of stuff in it, but it doesn't feel to me to be terribly gimmicky. It it feels Mm. like a kind of Dungeons and Dragons, but in a more tactical combat. And I mean, the combat's really good. Yeah, (laughs) It's, it's, there's a lot of things about it, but it's actually not a terribly complicated game. Doesn't feel like a game with gimmicky content. Like it's not like, look at all these minis. It feels pretty solid. Reviewing it is going to be a nightmare because as I say, it's like, I, I, I don't know if I should just start opening boxes and just looking at all these character cards and trying to, because it's the combat, combat is complicated enough that even just getting out the deck of cards for some random characters and, and looking at how much fun I think they'll play might be quite hard to <laughs> yeah. glean. But then it's like, I mean, it's, and also I know there are surprises in this box. I know there's some fun stuff. And there's a, there's a degree where I'm just like, how much of this do I really want to spoil for myself? I mean, because it's like, I actually can see myself playing this for, for, for a, a long yeah. time. I mean, these are, we all are interested in these legacy games, but that's something I had to do with Seafall of yeah. when I had committed and I decided I was absolutely done with playing it. You know, having to open all the boxes, having to explore, having to th- consider even having to open the boxes in order so that the story kind of makes sense to you it's yeah it's, but that's also when you you know you you when you realized that you were done with it when yeah. it was an experience that was not fun and what well, i'm finding with this is i'm enjoying the experience of just playing it like the the combat and the missions is is so exciting we had a point where like we ended a mission by someone leaping over a table and throwing three <laughs> oh, throwing wow. knives across the room it really, and it has this lovely f- sorry go on oh, go I well no say- i was just saying <laughs> <laughs> it really sounds like it like the game that i was hoping kingdom death would be yeah. Yeah, I can I think it kind of and I actually wrongly kind of in my head put it into a box of being like it's kind of a, a big mad Kingdom Death style experience, but on the cheaper side, so anyone can afford it. But actually it has a very different philosophy. Um even things like you talked about with the way Kingdom Death ended up having systems of being like, well, you get a plus one to hit on this token, a plus one in this card, and a plus Ooh, one. So much. And the fact that like the yeah. systems get messy. And this actually, the rules how to play. Uh, it's a little bit to learn at first because of the nature of you getting random characters out of the box. You might have to learn some complex stuff straight away, especially because it seems like all of the characters often have like unique little rules of their own, a um, bit cosmic style. But at the same time, it's not a difficult game to learn. And there don't appear to be many like clauses and keeping track of things. And actually it allows that the fighting to flow. You've got a lovely system whereby the combat cards you're using are also like timers for the mission. So you can't dilly dally but then also you've got treasure to pick up and that's kind of an action and you can't just if you don't pick up the treasure and the money on the floor so you kind of have this nice tension when you're playing of being like having another character like and you just use your whole turn to just like run across the room and pick up some treasure and the other characters that you're playing with are like really (laughs) also because you're not even supposed to be communicating with each other there's a chance that you might both try and do that (laughs) and it's like it's kind of a bit of a mad rush of like running through levels as quickly as you can whilst killing things. And it's got a lot going on, but it's it's really just the flow of playing the mission so far has been a lot of fun and we've found it really addictive. Okay, so, so, so interested, so interested to see what you say now because that's really, that feels like a modern hero quest and just makes my ears prick up and gives me little goosebumps and everything. 
I mean, yeah, there's there's tons to go into detail, and I'm looking forward to doing it. And I'm looking. I need to play a bunch more before I can get to that point. But I mean, what I would say is the first time we played it, um, I was you know a bit. I wasn't sure how good it was going to be. I got a friend over, and we literally we played it for a whole day. And then at the end of the day, he was like, "Ah, what are you doing tomorrow?" And he literally just came around the next day, and we just played for another whole day. And especially with this kind of game where you need to like, you know, we're board game reviewers, we're good to do this. But when you're trying to bring in kind of civilians from the outside world and being like, (laughs) hey, help me review this thing, you kind of end up sometimes being like, are you going to come around to my house again soon because we need to carry on? But the fact that it's just (laughs) just both grabbed my my attention and my imagination, but also my friends has been a, a lovely sign. It seems good. Uh, well, that carries us really neatly onto uh, something that I want to talk a bit about Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Sure. So we are recording this before you guys have had the chance to see my video. Um, but at the time we released this podcast, so you, sweet listener, you you can go and watch my Pandemic Legacy Season 2 uh, video right now. <laughs> and uh, so, hey. And it'll um, be spoiler free because you're, oh, you're so, going to be using my copy of the game to so you don't have to even worry about exactly, a blood yes. border and all that. I have finished Pandemic Legacy Season 2. Um, there will be no spoilers in the video, so go watch that. No spoilers in this podcast. Um, aside from my opinions... Um, if people aren't aware, Pandemic is an absolute classic of board game design about um, battling diseases that spread around the world like nasty uh, viruses. It's, uh, they spread like viruses. Like tiny bad people. Imagine, um, like a person, but small, like a virus, but not, but anyway. Um, Pandemic Legacy, if people aren't aware, is the Pandemic Games, but uh, played in the Legacy format that we're talking about, whereby you open secret compartments in the game and the game changes and you put stickers on the board and then after you've finished like 12 or 15 games of it, you put it in the bin because it's useless or you frame the board because it's now um, a nice memory. So I think everyone on this podcast right now would have assumed Pandemic Legacy Season 2 would be a slam dunk. Season 1, I called the game of the year when I reviewed yeah. it two years ago. And the one, Dice one of Tower. the best games ever as well. Yeah. Absolutely. It's one of the best games experiences I've had. Yep. Uh, Dice Tower got their season two review out before I did. They all love it. I didn't love it. They're a surprising probably a lot of people. Um, and I know I'm not looking forward to the comments on my season two review because there's always people who get really upset when this happens. But I honestly, I, I would call Legacy Season 1 a 10 out of 10 game. This I would call... Uh, sometimes a 9, sometimes an 8, sometimes a 7. And That's the- strong. So it's still good. good. It's still good. But in terms of like, they really didn't have to do much. And the reason that I think it failed that I go into length in in my video is that the plot of season two, which was set 70 years after season one. And again, no spoilers for season one in this podcast either. But surprise, season one is all about a a a disease, disease, right? So 70 years after that, um, you play uh, doctors who've retreated to these floating islands called Havens. And so the map is only around the Pacific Ocean. So the West Coast of Africa, the East Coast of South America, Europe and America. So there's only like a tenth of a pandemic board Mm -hmm. on your board when you start. And Pandemic Legacy Season 2 is all about reconnecting cities to the grid, going out, exploring, building your board, uh, finding cities, and essentially rebuilding the world, which is a great, exciting concept. But all of my problems with it stem from the difference between Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and 2 is the difference between Gloomhaven and Seafall, which is... Does your legacy game start with a rock-solid game and then tweak it? Or does it start with sort of just this nebulous experience and go, well, we're going to be adding game as you play? Which was the problem with C4. C4 was not a good game to begin with and really struggled to become a good game ever. But the thing that sounds great about Gloomhaven is fundamentally, when you throw away everything else in the box, 
it's just quite a nice combat game, yeah. right? So season two of a pandemic just it doesn't have the wit, the balance, the the frustration, the joy, the excitement of regular pandemic. And for me, all throughout season two, it struggled to ever achieve that. Um, partially because, I mean, and the analogy I'd put down is that imagine if you removed like 10% of the cities in regular pandemic or one of the diseases or limited mm-hmm. uh, how many actions a player takes. Suddenly that goes from uh, a hard game to an impossible game or to an easy game, right? That's how finely balanced pandemic is. Yeah. With season two, because there's so much to discover and explore, depending on how you explore, there's very little of that balance because some players will have a world that is twice as big as others. Some players will have more of a certain resource than others, which means you're not playing a balanced game really at any point. I always found it too easy or on one month, I found it too hard. That is interesting. And actually that does make me think a little bit about my experiences with uh, Pandemic Legacy series season one. I know, right? I actually found one of the interesting things about season two is it recontextualized my experience of season one, made me think about why it's good. And also, um, the funny thing is I can ne- it, it, I've never had this problem before because I can't go back and check because you can only play a Legacy game once. Yeah, yeah. of course. So I was yeah. like, well, season one's the best game ever. And now playing season two, I'm like, was season one as good as yeah, I Yeah, was it the first thing I, you I'm did in really, that? Exactly. Yeah. really surprised to have you say uh, that it felt too easy because that, for me, was a huge part of the, uh, the appeal of season one was you go into this experience and some games are sadly just a disaster. And that's, you know, part of the theme of it is you, you get back up again and then next month, hopefully you do better. I mean, yeah. if you're not an expert, that's true of pandemic, like vanilla yeah, pandemic yeah, well, as well. Yeah, fair enough. Um, if you just keep get if you get really unlucky with with the cards being drawn and the cards being reshuffled, you know there is that element of sometimes you can just be completely royally screwed. But did you find it too easy then, or was it just that it didn't seem, or was it just erratic in a um, way that it didn't was, it feel was, right? It was erratic, um, and it, it, I have a lot of problems that I don't really want to go into now because sure. it, it would just be me talking at you two guys, and really you two and the people at home can just go and watch my video because one of the other interesting things as well is this same lack of a strong foundation also affected the plot. And this was something I found really interesting where the storytelling in Pandemic Legacy Season 1 is pretty bad, but the story in Season 1 is good. Yeah. yeah. Because we all know, and this is almost a direct quote from my review, but we all know what chartering a flight to Paris to set up roadblocks looks Mm -hmm. like. And that's dramatic. Whereas Season 2, with its quasi-sci-fi thing, you don't know what this world is, and they never really express it to you because... Well, there's almost no text, and Matt Leacock and Rob Davio aren't born storytellers. Yeah. So, by which I mean they're not professional writers. This, I mean, actually, I think as well, like the the process of storytelling within that setting as well, within within board games, uh, yeah. is really um, something where there's a ton of room for improvement. Well, I mean, there nobody's are, doing. There it. are like no professional writers working in yeah. board games today. Yeah. Um, and you know. But interesting talking about, because it made me think about difficulty. And actually, one of the interesting things about uh, Pandemic Legacy Season 1, which I found, was that actually I often had an artificial sense of difficulty based on the criteria of what we thought we had to do. Well, exactly. So this is a huge thing. So in Season 1, your doctors, guess what? The population of these cities around the world feels quite important. You have yeah. a tangible yeah. sense of people dying. So again, and also we were like, we know we're going to lose this mission, but we can set up this infrastructure, which is going to be helpful going forward. And all you yes. can do is have this inkling of what's been hinted maybe in cards that might be important or might not. And 
And to be honest, though, actually, it was the fact that that was very rarely given any feedback that amplified the game. And I remember at the very end of the game, it being like, oh, and this is actually an element I didn't like. Um, oh, here's your score for the game, basically. And it rated you based on how well you play the game yeah. yes. and gave you a score, which did determined what state the world was in and you got to read some flavor text. But in my head, like we'd gone out of our way to do some things that we felt thematically were really yes, important and the game just rewarded. hadn't like tracked and it. We'd, we'd done and the I was same. Like, eh. Yeah. Uh, you were frustrated by this as well, Paul? Yeah, our group, uh, we, we were like a few points off the next level up and it was because we hadn't quite fulfilled a certain criteria that we didn't think was... Yeah, particularly significant versus so some of the other criteria. Is, right, and this is something that that I think is far worse in season two because in season two the story is well, you need to go and remap the world, you need to go and find supplies to treat the disease. Um, it doesn't really say that you should be taking care of the cities that are on the board currently, and so and no, no not getting into spoilers here, but you rapidly mm-hmm. end up with like four objectives, and the game doesn't tell you which to prioritize, and so you it it's really thin you're like is it important that the population of this city stays high cuz it says here it's either recovering or fine like you're not protecting grand metropolises you're like protecting seven dudes in a house off the east coast of africa and it's like how important are they cuz we're trying to save the world but what even does saving the world look like when the world's already ruined it's very vague yeah um, that's interesting it's it's the the ability to get your head into and to just actually have the, the the simplicity of the framework, but the tools to actually create your own story. An interesting aside, actually, like I've been continuing to play a bunch of the um, Arkham Horror LCG incredibly slowly again because my group that I use for my campaign games is like the same group. I and- just finished the Dunwich campaign this weekend. I, that was Dunwich Legacy. Is that the, Dunwich Legacy? So the full eight mission campaign. Woof. I'm about like a third of the way into it. But one of the things I've realised actually would just dramatically improve the game, and I realised this through playing Gloomhaven actually is just like it needs the text the flavor text that you read just needs to be like a quarter of the length and to be less descriptive because i found we, oh interesting we finished um a mission um and it was basically it gave us some description of how we escaped and it was like we escaped in this vehicle doing this thing but it gave us too much information about how that happened and actually it's like you know what in that setting we didn't need to we were already uh, one character was a man and a dog another one was a dilettante with two pistols and we had a third person who was with us who was a an npc and we'd already had like because that game just comes to life on the table with the cards because you end up basically inventing in your head these scenarios, these stories about what's happening and how things unfold yes. to then end the campaign and to start the campaign with this very wordy, descriptive information about exactly what yes. happens. It's, it's just it, yeah. massively yeah. counterintuitive to the game. I That's think there, there's something to be said about not overwriting these things because people are very good at uh, filling in the space, filling in the blanks. and Exactly. Like, let them yeah. imagine them escaping on a boat or a plane with their characters. Uh, or do what uh, Dead of Winter did. And if you are writing fiction, uh, you are writing a fiction card specifically about one character around the table yeah. whose personality is already yes. in but then, But then the thing with Arkham is your character is your deck. Right, exactly. And it's, I mean, it's like, you know, like you can have like a policeman who is just a walking machete, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. And you can have a detective that's also just like Captain Investigation. So I think it's funny how like the fun of that game is bringing the stories to life through your actions and the funny thing I've noticed, and I'm actually really interested to see if this continues in Gloomhaven, is all of the scriptive writing in the flavor text before missions and on cards and stuff yeah. is to do with describing the tone of or the, the feeling of the characters that you're voicing. So actually, it's really fun to read out because it, it just basically 
it makes it more rather than like reading out someone else's descriptive writing, which is boring. Yeah, uh, you're, it's just giving you more flavor for like how you perform this dumb little thing. Yeah, to there's an interesting um, lick of uh, flavor text in Pandemic Legacy season two in the very first thing you read. So this is not a spoiler, um, but it refers to the fact that these supply outposts you're building are torn down by the Hollow Men. Yeah, and, uh, and, the and you get no dis- and you get no description. And theoretically, that's great because you're, if you're like you know reading a book or watching a film, it's like oh the Hollow Men are coming. You're like that's cool. Yeah. But Pandemic Legacy season two, you're meant to be saving the world and prioritizing stuff and deciding what's more important. So it's like if you give me nothing on who the Hollow Men like are these guys diseased? Are they human? Are they raiders? Are they animals? What like I can't make tactical decisions and I can't invest in your world. And you know this is where actually this is the sort of thing where like I would love to see like basically just a digital app from someone who's played um, the King of Dragon Pass. <laughs> just being like, even if you're not going to tell people specifically what to do, just have a set of things where you can just be like, have four advisors tell you four different things. But at least then you can get some sort of sense of being like, what actually, what do people keep telling me about generally? What's more important? Yep. If you yeah. own an iPad and haven't bought King of Dragon Pass yet, then... Oh, actually that is a, if you, it's hard recommend for people who play a lot of video games, but if you play a lot of board games, then uh, the systems in that game will make a lot more sense to you and you'll have a ton of fun. Uh, Paul, we've left you hanging for a long time. That's do you fine. want to chat about Azul for a bit? I'd love to chat about Azul, which is, you know I'd what? I'd love to. I, I would. Because... So uh, this this was sent to me because it's it's like Paul likes tile laying games, right? So he'll like this because it's a game about laying tiles. And I thought immediately in my head, I was thinking of like Carcassonne or Isle of Sky. But it's literally about laying tiles as in ceramic tiles to make <laughs> patterns. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's an abstract game where you, you score points based on uh, making rows and lines of these things. Paul, are you sure you haven't been subcontracted against your will to be an actual... Ta- <laughs> don't tell him, don't tell him! Oh God, <laughs> He's I halfway have. through my bathroom. Have you played this game called people's The Plasterer? <laughs> but, uh, well, this is it, and that, I guess, is fundamentally the theme of it, because it's all just abstract patterns and colours, and I'm not crazy about abstract games, but I really actually quite like it. Yes, um, so the I, when a you, round and begins... you've played it, you've tried it, right? <laughs> Me? Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna, this is a terrible idea. I was gonna try and back and forth to uh, explain how the games work, but one of us should explain the rules of it and it should probably be you. All right. Well, you, you have this sort of central pool of uh, circular things like coasters that have tiles on them of different colors. Uh, and Beautiful you, plastic tile. Well, sort of. Right. Really nice. <laughs> almost pretty, acrylic. Yeah. Yeah. And immediately they look nice and they look like giant candy, which is possibly why they look nice. I don't know. Um, and everybody around the table in order takes turns um, taking a certain color from one of these coasters because there'll be four tiles on there and there might be two of one color and one each of another color. Uh, but you can only take colors. So if if you want, say, the red ones from that, you take the red ones. You, you can't grab them all. And the rest go in a kind of a dump pile in the middle that gradually gets bigger and bigger. And then occasionally someone will go, oh, I'm just swiping from this larger pile. But whatever you take, you're always taking a specific color. And then you've got this grid on your own player board, which you gradually fill in. But you can only fill in the grid in very precise ways, like, uh, you know, two tiles can slot into here. And then at the end of each round of play, those tiles, in a weird, almost sort of video gamey way, they slide along your player board and plop into holes in a way that score you points. And then you go round and round and until somebody has done uh, an entire row of tiles, at which point the game ends, you add up your points. The, the, 
challenge there being you could fill in your board really quickly, but you end the game really quickly, but you might not actually be the person with the most points. So it's yep. in your interest to sort of make a judgment of like, if I end the game right now by filling in this row, will I have more points than anyone else? Or is are people getting ahead of me? Do I need to pick tiles that will help me score points or deny other people tiles? And if you describe this to me, I would be like, that sounds interesting, but not at all that appealing. And yeah, I've played it a few times now, uh, maybe about four times, and I've really enjoyed it. And talking about it now, it's one of those things. I say this a lot. Talking about it now makes me just want to play it again. It's interesting because um, the <laughs> I want to add one more thing to the rules explanation. So as you're building your um, uh, grid of tiles, as you're finishing your wall, Whenever you place a tile on the wall, so to speak, or floor or ceiling, wherever these tiles are going, yeah. Whenever you put your tile in, imagine it going in, and then if there are, if it is in a row or a column, you get a number of points like ping, 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 ping. Like if it's in a column of five, then you get five points. If it's in a row of four, you get four plus the five for nine points. So you're kind of trying to build, but in this spidery yes. way. So you're always yes. adding to the same column or row. The, the bigger tableau you make of things, the more points you get as well, which encourages you rather than to just finish that row to trips try and expand everything because at that point you'll score more points every time you do almost anything. Yeah. So I'm going to immediately dive into something a bit weird and talk about a word I'm going to try coining now. Let's see if it takes off, but hand feel so like, <laughs> like, like mouth yeah. feel, right? So for, right. For, feel, I think. <laughs> no, because the, feel can be uh, sort of the emotional feeling I get. Whereas uh, I'm talking about specifically the feeling of touching this game and moving it around. I'm sure there's a word for that. What nice hands? Tact- like, tactility, uh, surely. Tactility. tactility. That's it. Mm. All right, <laughs> that's shut the word. Up. Shut up, Matthew. Shut <laughs> up. Uh, so uh, the tactility of it's really nice because um, these tiles are quite heavy. They're thick. They're three dimensional. Yeah. They're not. They're halfway to being cubes. Um, if you can imagine such a thing, Matt. I um, cannot. Bricks. All but kind of, but square. Yeah. So um, the feeling of reaching up and clacking together a few of these red tiles as you pick them off a coaster, lifting up the coaster to slide. How do they the combine rest. in? How do they? Com- How do they fit together? How do they? They they're well they're square, so that you lay them on their backks and then they become. A oh, group. it was when you were talking about floors and and walls. I was like, is this three D thing? Are you oh, making imagine. an actual house? That'd be cool. Uh, but no, you're just making a flat thing. Um, but picking these things, sliding them around, uh, grabbing them from the middle, like because they're such wonderful objects to hold, it just feels yeah. really good. Um, kind of like Splendor feels nice. That makes a lot around. of sense. Yes. I mean, like touching yes. things is nice. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because I can't remember if I talked about this on the podcast, but this is from Plan B Games, um, who previously put out uh, ooh, Century Spice Rose. Yeah. Um, another game with metal coins. So they really cared about the tactility of their games, clearly. But what I found really interesting about Century is that um, it's a game about where you move cubes a lot. As you trade spice and the cubes represent cardamom and uh, vanilla or whatever. Um, so it's a game with cubes and you're moving cubes, you're touching cubes, you're doing all this stuff with cubes. But it also comes with four plastic bowls, which you put the cubes into. And I was fascinated by the fact that Clearly, these these bowls were an incredibly expensive thing to include in a board game, but I preferred the game without the bowls because reaching into a bowl, a small plastic bowl, to get my wooden cubes felt awful to me. Mm. And I don't know if this experience can be like... it's the feel rather than the look. Exactly. The, the bowls look great. They're wonderful objects that you want, but in terms of reaching into them, I mm. physically was repelled. Hey, pro so, tip I've been using for, uh, for Arkham LCG, I've been putting the health tokens and the... Uh, horror tokens and stuff in little egg cups 
Ooh. I'll tell you what, putting your finger in an egg cup, it's pretty nice. That sounds okay. It's so pretty nice. Also, for future reference, then, Quinn's is not a fan of bowls, generally. Well, I if I like a big bowl. If you give me a big bowl that I can really reach down and scoop stuff out, that's nice. But I don't know whether it's the size of my fingers or something, because I got these big sausage fingers. But like reaching into a bowl, a small plastic bowl, didn't like it. I've got to say, egg, though, egg that, I mean, okay. it's a hugely aesthetically pleasing game for me as well. Not just because of the pieces, but... The, the color of the player boards, the color of everything. It's a very Azul? vibrant yeah. kind of game, and that appeals hey, to me. Guess what? It's Chris Williams, same as guy who did uh, Arboretum and Pandemic Legacy Season 2. I think it's Chris Williams. But yeah, the secret best uh, art designer working in board games today, Chris Williams, did Azul as well. Because ah. Sophia Gavel took her with him, I believe, when she sold FTZ to Asmodee. Because previously, Zedman had Chris Williams in-house doing all these amazing pieces of art design and then when she sold uh f to z to asmodee she took chris williams with her i think to plan b well he's done a fine job i think it, it is I, I don't think i would enjoy it as much if it didn't have that visual quality of just you know the, the theme of the game i guess is you are just building a uh, sort of a very Floor. attractive tile mosaic. And the idea that it does indeed look like a very attractive tile mosaic certainly adds to that feel. But yeah. I'm going to have to pin you down again, uh, Jeremy Paxman style. You did open this up by saying, I actually really quite like it, which is, <laughs> I've got to say, I was chuckling away to myself at that for a little while because it's possibly some of the faintest praise I've, I've heard in a it's, while. I'm sorry, it's not meant to be. It's because abstract games usually don't ring true with me at all. And it's okay so I, to be surprised that you like something I, or like actually feel that you're not an expert, but you enjoy things. That's something that people are terrible for in video games. It's like, I really like this. Yeah, but are you an expert in this genre? No, I'm not. Then you're probably wrong. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the, yeah, it's, it's fine to just I, be I like, you know what? Saying like, that. Yeah. Well, the question I've got then is why do we call this an abstract game when, because abstract is meant to, because it's hard to explain. On podcasts. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> but in this, in the past, we've done what the rest of the board game industry has done and picked like Tash Kalar and um, now Azul and gone, these abstract games are weird because abstract games are weird, but they're pretty good. Neither of those games are technically abstract. They both have stories. You're laying a tile thing or in Tash Kalar, you're battling in an arena of champions with some stones and some spirits. Got to have stones to get in an arena like that. Tashkalar is still real good, and they've just announced a new expansion for it. So yeah. if you've not yet tried Tashkalar, it's good, it's cheap, it's by our favorite designer ever. Take a look. Vlada. Ta- Vlada. Good old Vlada. Do you like it, Paul? Would you? Do you do you like it? <laughs> do you do you like it? I do, I do. And the thing is, I want to do a written review of it quite soon. It's, it's the challenge of trying to describe just through the medium of text. Because I don't know if it would look that great on camera or be that great as a video review. I think but it's I, good for a written review. Ah, oh, I've got to, I've got to do something with it because okay. it takes some nice photos. Take some nice photos. In which case, I'll save my thoughts on the actual game of Azul for uh, for the written review. Then, and we'll do that. Let's do that. Let's do that. Do we want to quickly talk about something else which we uh, reviewed on the site? last week well uh well. i do i would love to talk about something which i don't know if it's going to get coverage on the site first I'd love sure to that hear, makes sense i'd love to hear paul talk about lisboa oh boy speaking oh. of tiles and things matt if you don't know what lisboa looks like you should google image search it right now okay i i don't know how i feel about the look of it it's very very blue and i found <laughs> it, it's a huge board and there's a lot of symbology on this game it's um 
one of the most complex games that I've approached in a while. And I'm, it's Vital, is it pronounced Lacerda, his surname? I'm never sure if I say that right. I'm not sure either, Paul. I'm so the, the same chap we were talking about earlier with uh, things like, am I going to say Vin, Vinhus? Vinhus, Vinhus. Vinhus. And it's a game about rebuilding after the famous uh, sort of Renaissance era earthquake that hit uh, Lisboa itself. The idea being that you you start with a city that's kind of blank and you build rows of shops that uh, sell different goods, which will hopefully get the economy going again. And you get ships to carry these goods around. You have your own player board that you slot cards into that represent things beep, like beep, ships beep, beep, or beep, 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 beep. Matthew. Oh, that's, that's the map. That's phone. the map phone alarm. Can, can which I is can just... I help you? I've just, hello, I'm looking at a picture of Lisboa now, and you're right, it is quite blue. It's a very attractive game. Oh, this is it. The artist has made something that I think is like, it's it's uh, at the risk of disappearing up my own bumhole. I would Goodness. say like the artist has made a piece of art that's so nice. I think most uh, most slash a lot of people actually dislike it. Like he really went himself went out there. He didn't make something sort of crowd pleasing. He made something quite staggeringly blue and has gone on record as saying, "Sorry, it's so blue." But oh no, I do not want this man to apologize. For well, he has something. apologized because I well, think there was really, a bit- that's very saddening because I think it's gorgeous. It's got some beautiful illustration work. It's incredibly stylistic and stylish. And what you don't know, it, like those photos you're looking at now, Matthew of Lisboa, like don't capture all the little detail work that I'm sure Paul's seen on the board. Where- I can yeah. see some of it, but yeah, I know what you mean. It's, it's clearly something beautiful. Like it's it's a, it's a board game board that I could imagine being framed in a, on a wall in a museum, which yeah, is it's, for a historical game is fantastic. Ian O'Toole, we should say the artist is a reader and big fan of Shut Up Sit Down. We're going to try and get him out to Shucks in 2018, I think. <laughs> if if I haven't told you this already, then you're in for a surprise. But yeah, we're gonna if you're listening, uh, try and get you out. Um, he also did uh, <laughs> Vinhouse Deluxe, um, the beautiful edition of Vinhouse. Ah, yes. And I think he did the Gallerist as well. Um, I if think you so. Look- if you've ever thought the gallerist's cover was gorgeous, then I think really like I do love it when games do go all out and don't just have the art on the cards in a certain style. Like yeah. I, I love it when you really get something that that pops in a theme. I mean, actually, that was the thing I really loved about Burgle Bros was was the fact that like actually yeah. kind of went for that kind of '60s spy movie um, film, like almost the montage scene for the yeah. Like I I I, lo- I really love that when it's just like no, we're not going to have a specific like kind of off the shelf style we're going to really go for a deep dive into something that fits yeah and it's in within the time frame of shut up and sit down starting and today we're starting to now see the birth of like people wanting to get artists name on board game boxes artists being given free reign to design a game like because previously artists would be like we want you to dress this board game but it wouldn't be like the artist's grand creative vision it would be mm. like the artist doing their job hey paint as a man on a horse why right don't you? paint us a sort of generic uh border for a card which is like brown and maybe looks a bit like mahogany like no now now artists like you say with burgle brothers or now with you know um lisboa are really being able to be like let's make something real cool yeah i love it well it, the, it and, undeniably has this style you know it's it doesn't look like anything else i've ever played but you quite liked The Gallerist, right, Paul? Which was Vital Lasada's previous big game. I did, and I, I enjoyed it more than Lisboa, and I found it more... Okay. I mean, there's a lot going on in The Gallerist, but I found it a little easier to actually sort of apprehend everything and put it inside my head. One of the intimidating things about Lisboa, like, it's a board that's almost as big as my table. And, like, my table <laughs> isn't tiny. It's about a medium-sized table, and then you have your own player boards. I couldn't immediately... It took me a while to sort of work out, like, okay, this section of the board does this, this section does this. 
there's a huge section of the board here that represents like three figures that you can go to to gain their favor that maybe doesn't actually need to be as large as it is. You know, these sections don't need to be as large as they are. And it took me a while to work out like what does what because it felt like a big wash of blue. There is a lot that goes on in the game of systems that interact with each other, such as meeting people to gain their favor to do things versus rebuilding parts of the city versus your own player board where you gradually collect tokens that can represent things like special powers, things you can do. And well, there's it, a, I, yeah, I mean, there's a question... Go on, sorry. Uh, it, sorry, excuse me. There's a question that immediately rises to my mind. Like, as we were just saying, if now artists are being given free reign, to what extent do we want beauty versus readability? Like, yeah. Ideally, if, you have both. If it's but... complex and it's also not readable, then I can see why that is. I, an issue. I, that's, yeah. That was my biggest challenge. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of sort of symbols and individual tokens in it, and it's a very text free game. And I can understand, like, apart from the cards that you have, most stuff doesn't have any, any writing on it. And I can understand that has a language independent benefit that you can, you know, print a copy somewhere else and a lot of it will look the same. But there would be things like sort of special, I think, cardinal powers that you get from the center of the board, whereby you have this sort of little cardinal figure who walks around in a circle and as he steps over tokens, you can collect them and put them on your player board. But they don't say anything, just like real life, but they don't, they're just like a little picture of something. Then you have to verify what does that picture actually mean? What's the special power that's tied to that? And I was, I spent a lot of time going back and forth between like the player guide and the manual to remind myself of what a certain thing does. And that's that, such a shame. It doesn't get into your head very quickly. And I've, I've played, I don't know, two or three games now. And I still, every time I sit down at it, it takes a while to set up. And then I, it, I also haven't learned like what is particularly significant or good or what isn't. Like I'm pretty sure now that building shops is a really cool, important idea. There's this whole separate board though of just scoring criteria. And a thing that you can do on your turn is grab another scoring criteria and be like, okay, at the end of the game, if you've done this, you you alone get bonus points for this because you grabbed a card for it. And I did or loads of that in one of the games I played and it turned out that those things were just not that useful to have. <laughs> and they didn't score me that many points. So there's so much going on. And it all, for me, it felt like a very big soup of abstract imagery and symbols. And like, what does this picture mean? And it thinks like you get a player guide where it has, I don't know, 70 or something uh, of these tokens where you have to look up individually which one does. And, you know, they they fall into your head for a while, but it is not a thing that you get into very quickly. And... It's not made me feel like particularly keen to to throw it back on the table and play it again. It, it feels like it's a game with a lot in, but none of those things made me really excited, just sort of curious. Oh, that's interesting. I, th- I think I'm enough of a fop that I just want to spend time with that art design. Like, sure. I guess it's it's funny because, um, well, it's it's not necessarily as big an obstacle to learning as it could be because yes, you say the board is hard to read because of Ian's um, beautiful blue map. Well, certainly artwork. for me, anyway. Sure, but then so it does make it harder initially. But for for a player like me or potentially Matt, I look at that artwork and go, I will learn this game no matter what to spend time with this beautiful art. Um, like it, yes, it makes it harder to learn, but it also makes me want to learn more. 
Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. It's just finding the, the middle ground for that, isn't it? Because there is a point where it's like, oh, come on. Like, yeah, but clear iconography is just so key. You're right, though, Paul, that uh, I think about Vinhos and playing uh, Vinhos if people have made Vital Lasada's game of winemaking. But as opposed to, say, Uwe, Uwe Rosenberg games, where, like, I was just reading, rereading your Fields of Arl review this week, Paul, and you're saying, like, you can kind of do everything and everything gives you points. And that's similar in Feast for Odin. Um, but playing Vinhos, it's another game by Vita Lacerda, like Lisboa. It's a game where you have to be aware of precisely how important the different things are. Yeah. Like in, in Vinhos, you make wine and you get points for wine and that's great. But the wine magnates, the tastemakers of Portugal will, uh, multiply your score, I believe by a certain amount. So it's, it's absolutely enshrined how important they are because there's a mathematic, you like, you want to get, you know. You want to, you need yeah, to hold the points, magnates. but then of course you need to get the multipliers. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. And then at some point, multipliers become less good than just making some dang wine um, <laughs> because you're a winemaker and all that stuff. So, yeah, tricky, tricky stuff. Um, yeah, that point salad obfuscation is often where I hit a wall with, uh, with yeah. euros yeah. and of being like, you know, I actually I tend to approach them of just being like, well, I'm just going to poke the systems and see what happens and often just think I'm going to take this tactic and then it turns out if it's a good tactic, then well done. If it wasn't, then never mind. Well, that's kind of the fun thing about Uwe Rosenberg's, you know, Feast for Odin and Caverna because yeah. players can try stuff and go, I'm going to try this tactic. And almost always in Uwe games, it's like, yeah, that was a good tactic because he doesn't put bad tactics and tries to balance yes. them all out. Yeah, yeah I but, think that's a really good point. But I find an interesting thing as well, like is when you look at um, you look at maybe a, a really really tightly honed euro, which is something you can play and play and play, and there's clearly depth and and lots of people who are really into that sort of thing can say you know like when you know we play stuff and we're like actually we're not too hot on this, we didn't have that much fun with it, and people go yeah, but you can play this. 50 times or whatever, it's actually weirdly not that dissimilar conversation for something like Gloomhaven of being like, you know, well, yeah, but you can keep doing it and keep doing it. It's just that uh, the yeah. approach is just different. That's interesting. But um, I find what's interesting is, you know, sometimes you can have massive box games where you play a game and every time you play, it's fun, where you can also, I think one of the things that people who are, it's not a criticism, it's more just, I think, when people are very entrenched in that world of Euro games and they love them and they really spend a lot of time playing them, uh, they can forget that actually if you don't have that level of... Uh, of, of time commitment and also attention to how these things work, then you, it's very easy to just pick them up and play a couple of games and just not have a very good time. Yeah. Um, which is something I think people forget so, sometimes. Paul, if we now decide that maybe if Lisboa is not for you and we know that there's not that much traffic for it, do you not feel inclined to open that box again? You, you certainly always spoil for choice of new things to play. It's, yeah, it's not up my priority schedule, I'm afraid. And I know there are some people who will be very... I think very hardcore players are very dedicated Eurogamers who'd be really interested to see what we think of it. But there is a reason why that is a relatively small slice of the gamer spectrum. It's like this is a lot of people are going to bounce off of this or not really feel hugely invested in it. And then it will be, you know, you'll either love it or probably dismiss it. And I think the the intensity of the love from a small slice of gamers uh, will make it I don't know. I don't want to say disproportionately important because I feel like what? that's dismissing it. But do you see what I mean? Yeah, completely. It's exactly like Kickstarter games, you know, um, Lisboa. The, the people who want us to review Lisboa and the people who are going to love it probably already own it. They just want yeah. to see us reviewing it for validation. And also no, not just validation, but I think the fact that, you know, we've always tried Yeah, that to... was snide. I... No, no, no. But that, that, that's definitely a big part of it. Um, but I think another part of it that I've increasingly been thinking about is that, you know, what, a lot of what we do is trying to get the hobby out there, is trying to tell people, hey, games are great. And so obviously people <laughs> yeah. want the game that they love to be championed and, and shared out and more people play it. And I get that. But at the same time, it's like, well, a, a big part of what we do in terms of getting people into games is 
it doesn't work with every game. <laughs> there yeah. are some games we just look at and go, is this a game that you can play with people who aren't already super into this sort of thing? And a lot of the time the answer is just like, no. <laughs> so yeah. I always think about that. You know, when we put something on the site, you have to remember like, while say Paul's Lisboa review, Paul's imaginary Lisboa review is at the top of the site, X people, you know, some not small amount of people will come to shut up and sit down for the first time. Mm. A lot of those people won't know anything about board games. And what do you want at the top of the site? Maybe not a Lisboa review where Paul's saying, don't buy this. Yeah. It's too complicated. I, I, it and will this is... terrify some people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, this is a shout we had to have. And, you know, I remember having the conversation after we'd been doing the top 50 for a couple of years um, and having conversations with uh, friends and strangers and acquaintances over that same kind of holiday period and realizing I was like, you know, I had to come and say to Quinns and, and you, Paul, and be like, actually, you know, maybe that realization that like we all did this to try and get more people playing board games, but obviously, part of that is us then knowing more about board games because we play so many of them but then sliding gently into automatically servicing the people who are already devout board game fans and yeah. having to draw that line and some mm. people I can understand might not like that and be like no but shut them sit down you guys are big you guys are important in the scene so I want you to be like the kind of site for people like me who play games all the time but we there's still a lot more work we can do out there in terms of getting it's more a, people in. It's a yeah. balance to strike. It's a balance to strike. And it's things like every time I'm writing about worker placement, I keep thinking I should just describe what worker placement is just in case somebody has never seen that term before and they've come to the site new. And, you know, I don't want to lose that person in something that to us is so common, but is still jargon to people who are oh, new to games. Oh, it's so hard to... It's so hard not to fall into the trap. But it's funny. I know sometimes people probably feel like, oh, yeah, but, you know, there's loads of people playing board games now. Can't you just do now, stuff for now, us? St- but around. it's like, you yeah. know, maybe in five years' time, if it's got to the point where people say, oh, yeah, board games, everyone plays board games, then we'll be like, all right, let's have a deep dive on. <laughs> <laughs> but we're not there yet. So, no. yeah. Oh, funny. Uh, does anyone else have anything they want to cover as this train pulls into a uh, into a station? I'm, I'm collecting my baggage from the rack above your head and I'm leaning over you and my, my jacket's flapped into your face and I'm very sorry. I'm going to be the small boy who rushes in and goes, Sir! Sir! And I'll very briefly say that um, we played and reviewed the um, the expansion for Star Wars Rebellion and uh, we haven't actually um, gotten around to writing that yet. We'll be writing <laughs> that uh, this week, but it will be up on the website by the time you listen to this. And I think we won't go into any detail because you can just go and read it if you'd like. It'll be me and Quinn's writing it. Star Wars Rebellion, of course, the, one of the most exciting games to ever come out of the fantasy flight holders of the star wars license mm-hmm. one player's the rebels one player's the empire they got to find the rebel base it's huge it's exciting there's a plastic death star involved yeah and they've just expanded it with a little box you can buy that adds a bunch of stuff from rogue one as well as uh you know rogue one popular movie i liked it uh i liked it i didn't i didn't like it was it. fine I, I, I wasn't offended by it i don't like the i'm not having this conversation anyway <laughs> yes um so yeah uh if we would like to read what matt and i think uh, returning to Star Wars Rebellion um, after I reviewed it last year, uh, thinking of the new expansion, uh, talking a bit little bit about uh, a little franchise called Star Wars. You the can go and thing. read that on shutupandsitdown.com. Yes. So there you are. There's, there's us not telling you anything. I, <laughs> I have one thing to request, Paul. Mm-hmm. So people at home should know that I have been pestering Paul. This actually never happens, all things considered. We never get review copies sent to the wrong one. We never pester Paul? I'm no, pretty sure we pretty do. Pretty sure we pester him all it's the time. Happened. Review copies tend to only end up in the hands of the person on this team who wants to review them. Somehow, due to some cosmic imbalance, Paul has ended up with sidereal confluence. And I have been pestering him to review it just because I <gasps> want to read the review. 
for something like two months now. Oh so my god, oh. I forgot. Did you forget? But some, I mean, it's what happens. Well, you know, there's a pile of things, and then other things go on the pile. And there's ah, there's another game I'm looking at right now that I haven't mentioned yet, and I don't know if I should mention it because I'm going to play that game tomorrow. Next time, uh, what game is it? What game is it? It begins with C. Oh, Charterstone. Ah, oh, you've blown it now, yeah, because that's a legacy <laughs> game, and that's going to be... I've got, like, a couple of game groups, and that's... I'm hoping that'll be the Wednesday night game group for several weeks. We can oh. dig into that and uh, do a review probably early December. Ooh, sweet tarts, but I am going to... I am. I, I want to know whether to buy Sidereal or Confluence, Paul. I'm very rarely in the position of just being a shut-up and sit-down punter. But, yeah. <laughs> but I'm there now, and it maybe, maybe I've got to really just deep dive this month and, like, dig myself into as much gaming as I can. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, just play a bunch of stuff, and then we can have the new year, new you. Yeah, it's always fun to, after the Christmas break, we go away on the 20th of September, come back on, like, the 10th of January, and we're all energized. Yep. Or full of, you know, mince pies and slightly full of pies. Full of pies. Feeling sad, feeling ill. America might think it's the greatest country in the world, but hey, they don't eat pies for Christmas, do they? Nope. No. Christmas pies. Christmas, Christmas pies. Oh, it's not even Halloween. Oh, yeah, this was meant to be the Halloween episode. Spooky. (laughs) That's a spooky Christmas pie song. Thank you for listening. Let me ask you really quickly, have any of you ever had a paranormal experience? Yes. Really? No. <laughs> you seem I did, unsure. I, just, I, I thought I did because I made a really good video on paranormal experiences for, uh, <laughs> for Matt and I. That's uh, led you to feel that you actually Ooh. saw a guy. Well, a lot of people after that emailed in um, their paranormal experiences. If you want something spooky to do this Halloween, Google cool ghosts ghost truck yeah and you will get my youtube video where i played truck simulator and talked about ghosts that video is a prime example of why the uh, constant churn of content on youtube means great things get lost and there's no point in making yeah. genuinely well, timeless content I, but no, go watch I it i would say now. everybody listening go and check out cool ghosts because there are some excellent videos about video games that are just different and have a different perspective and it's so refreshing I'll tell you what, it's a pretty good back catalogue, but whenever you get somebody else who's just started watching it, it's almost impossible to get them to go and watch anything that's not new. Wow. <laughs> but that's that's YouTube. It's a strange culture. Uh, hmm. Matt, Paul, Paul Matt, Hello, Paul, hi. have you ever had a paranormal experience? I've had a brush with a spooky once or twice, yes. But um, yeah, I think so. I don't really remember. I think everyone else said I was just drunk, but I'm pretty sure I either saw a ghost or I saw it into the future. Were you high? But that's, uh, no, I wasn't. Okay, Paul? I no, I don't think I have. I've had a lot of really uh, unusual or very interesting dreams, and oh god, <laughs> right. in time, like some of them and the podcast, and the podcast, it so, came true. Yeah, but did you but like I, dream you'd have breakfast? Yeah, well, you know, if you're going to be glib about my my uh, prophecy <laughs> ability. Your brush with the afterlife. Oh, my, my future sight, but I, uh, I, that's about it. I really want was to it know a, Matt's story. Was it a stress though. dream? Was it a stress dream? No, it's not that interesting. I just, I, um, I had a, a vision of something happening and then, well, something happened and then someone ran to the room and then they just said exactly what they just ran into the room and said. And I was like, Oh, so like you experienced turbo deja vu. Yes. And I was like, you just, why are you doing back here? And he's like, what are you talking about? And it was just like, and he genuinely wasn't lying, but he, it, in my head, it's like, I just, but then I think I was half asleep and almost like it was that dreamlike stake of I heard the, the door go and I just envisioned what was going to happen and then it did. So I think it was a bit like maybe a stress dream sort of thing of being like, 
it's going to happen and it happened immediately anyway it was weird um, but everyone thought I was joking well um, hey let's end this podcast and all wish each other luck in encountering a spooky tonight okay. oh boy because uh, my wife's away and that's when I tend to encounter uh, spooky things in my flat absolutely things that go bump or donk in the dark <clears throat> be careful out there Halloween people and keep on playing board games Ooh. oh my god there's a ghost in the room no Matthew it was just me <sighs> saying goodbye to people in a spooky fashion <laughs> we'll promise we'll do some better Halloween content in 2018 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good, oh, goodbye everybody goodbye Bye.